Thank you for listening to Namat's Movie Reviews Podcast, available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Reddit, Instagram, and MeWe. And of course, be sure to visit mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. Hey, Tutri Devi, Tutri Devi. Tanto tempo fa, era un paese diverso. Can't stay here. Let's go. Put the kids in the car. We just go. Well, I think what men mistake for happiness was, in fact, uh, resignation and impatience. Camille? You home? And now women are beginning to feel that patience is not the answer. I don't think she's coming back this time. Where have you been? How could you not want to escape? You keep your mouth shut, okay? I finish here at three. Start today, yes? Right on. This is Maria. She's going to be here after school from now on. Jack, do you cook? cimiteri australiani mi scioccavano tutte quelle erbacce tutta quella dimenticanza chi sta a vita chi sta a felicità un'ora per abbracciarsi e poi morire the kids they're asking after you as poppy Jim. era anche un sogno per me di scappare Difficile parlare di certe cose, ma una a trovare coraggio. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 431. Releasing May 12 in Australian cinemas is Little Tornadoes, a 1971 set drama that tells the story of Leo, a newly single father who struggles to adapt after his wife leaves him. When Maria, a recently arrived Italian immigrant, becomes a surrogate homemaker for Leo and his children, Leo must learn how to live in the new, ever-changing world. A film 10 years in the making, Little Tornadoes is a beautifully crafted and delicately told story that embraces themes universal and intimate. Little Tornadoes is also the latest film from director Aaron Wilson, who I'm glad to say joins me now on the podcast. Aaron, I thank you so very much for your time today. Thank you, Matt, for having me. Absolutely. You know, doing my research as, I'm, as I tend to do in all these uh, kind of interview matters, it's very interesting just reading up about your movie. 10 years in the making... Part, I guess, you could say maybe an unofficial trilogy. I don't know how if there's actually a name even on it. Um, kind of, I wouldn't say a sequel to your debut film, Canopy, but it does have narrative threads that kind of borrows over from, from that movie. 
where did your idea for Little Tornadoes kind of come up with? What Did you always have this kind of vision of this kind of trilogy mapped out or is that something that kind of happens after Kennedy comes out and you think it to yourself, you know, I think there's something more I can, I can do with this? Uh, it was actually a story that I had in my head from the beginning uh, and it wasn't necessarily a trilogy. It was originally one script for a film across three generations and three chapters. And it sort of got broken up as we went along into three stories because it was just quite mammoth. It would have been a four and a half, five hour film. Right. So, uh, when we were doing Canopy and Little Tornado Shoot, we kind of shot them back to back. Okay. Uh, and we split Canopy off into uh, its own film. And then we went into post production and finished that uh, in time for Toronto Film Festival in 2013. And then we were going to dive into finishing some filming and then post production on. What would become little tornadoes um and then it took a few years to find the funding and various other struggles along the way and hiccups um but what i managed to do was get back to the country where we shot the film and where i grew up every year to film little moments and textures of the film so for example the harvest the harvest wasn't it wasn't um good when we we shot the film in 2009 so I think in 2015, I went back and shot the harvest shots we now see in the film uh, when we had a good harvest. So it was just, I guess, progressively when I got enough money, we'd go back, we'd film some more material and put it into the film. Uh, and then my editor and I would play with it and massage and um, sort of see what else we needed. Uh, and that sort of got, got us to 2020 uh, and we were ready to go into post-production and that's when the pandemic struck. And we yeah, right put back a little bit further um but even through that we we found ways to adapt and uh at that stage we brought on christos and christos was invaluable at, at sort of crafting the, the the poetic narrative that is the backbone of the story um and we wouldn't have had that opportunity had we finished the film a little bit earlier but um yeah it was always the idea of having these different different chapters that all formed I guess a, a, a loose narrative that speaks about this regional Australian experience that begins in World War II, um, and we're now exploring 30 years later in 1971. Speaking of that regional Australia, the film is set and shot in um, Tuckumwall, I believe mm. it's the pronunciation, New South Wales. That's your hometown, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Tuckumwall is on the Murray on the north side, and then just on the south side is Cobram. Um, it's actually the hometown of my director of photography, Stefan Dossio. Um, so we both grew up in that world and we're very familiar with the uh, the landscape and the community. When it comes to the landscape stuff, you know, when you're, of course, when you're doing period film and there's, you know, you talk to your production designer and saw, sure, and costume designer and all sorts of stuff, is there much in a way of, of much change to the area since you grew up in that you had to do kind of a lot of window dressing or was there still kind of like, certain things about the place that you grew up in that, you, that was so beneficial to the movie um, that you didn't really have to tinker around too much with it? There are a lot of elements that, that haven't changed. Like the factory, for example, that we shot in, quite a few scenes, our main character works in this pump-making factory, hmm. pump parts factory, uh, and it's been there since the 40s. And it, the machinery has not changed since then. They're still using those same lathes and the same drills, uh, and it looks well-worn and well-loved. So we basically stepped into that world. They actually said before we filmed, oh, we've got to clean the walls for you and tidy it up. I'm like, no, do not no, touch it. No, don't do it. Don't touch it. Yeah, exactly. 
but you know they thought oh you can't show that and like, no that's life that's that's texture and lived in experience so we we just stepped into some spaces like that and we were lucky and then other spaces we had our production designer and our costume designer really search the town for details and textures that were around they might have been in people's family homes or in museums or or shops but we, we collectively through speaking to people in the community found these these elements and um put them into the film and then we asked some of the older generation hey how does this feel like is this right or and they came in and offered little advice uh, bits of advice and helped us tweak uh, and we kind of built our world that way right yeah, um, I want to talk about your cast, Mark Leonard Winter, who plays Leo. Simply fantastic in the film. I think it's really hard, you know, because cinema is such an expressive, you know, performance is such an expressive thing. So when you have characters, actors portray introverted characters, you know, you could, there's a fine line there and kind of like have expressive feelings. And he does a fantastic job in it. How did you know of Mark beforehand? Did you have to audition for a role? Did you write for him? Did you, did you have you worked with him before? Because it's such a um Fantastic performance and a really well-cast performance as well. Yeah, he's pretty wonderful. I, I had not worked with Mark before. I'd heard about, about him, but it was my uh, wonderful casting director, Jane Norris, who suggested Mark to me. Uh, I think he was the first person that she suggested, and we auditioned a few other people, and we ended up coming back to Mark just because of the presence and just just what he brought in the audition and the, the, the sort of the research and understanding he had of that, that character. And it was just the beginning, I guess, of it. And I thought that was, he would be a really fascinating collaborator. So that was my reason for, for choosing Mark. But what was really uh, um, rewarding was that when we came to, to film about a month before, Mark wanted to come up and just immerse himself in that world. Mm. And he wanted to work in the factory. So we put him in touch with the owner and then the workers on the factory floor and said, Go for it. So they taught him how to work the lathes, and he, by the end of the the week, he was operating it. He was just there working and being a, you know, a part of that world, um, you know. And obviously, he's observing all these blokes that work in this world. And it's a bizarre thing where you're working together, but you're all in isolation because you're working on your own little lathe in your own little bubble, not talking to anyone. Um, and then we'd observe when he'd go into the lunchroom, they'd still sit in their bubbles and not say a lot. So it was just a nice social dynamic to observe. I watched that as a director and then Mark was learning as an actor uh, how his character might be informed by this experience. So that was really fascinating to have that be our rehearsal. And I, I don't like doing typical rehearsals, line, line reads and that sort of stuff. I like to, to sort of discuss character and backstory and I guess Mark's um, uh, experience was an extension of that, just immersing himself in that world and finding his character by feel. The Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast is brought to you by 80s Tees. 80s Tees is an online retailer of licensed t-shirts and pop culture gear from your favourite movies, TV shows, cartoons, video games, comic books and musicians. Celebrate your inner 80s nerd and click on the link in the show notes below to get the raddest retro t-shirts delivered to your door. The Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast is brought to you by Loot Crate. Founded in 2012, Loot Crate is the worldwide leader in fan subscription boxes. Loot Crate partners with industry leaders in entertainment, gaming, sports, and pop culture to deliver monthly themed crates, produce interactive experiences in digital content, and film original video productions. No matter what you geek out about, Loot Crate has a subscription box for you. To get your very own exclusive collectibles, apparel, and gear delivered to your door, be sure to click on the link in the show notes below. 
The Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast is brought to you by Tee Public. Tee Public is the world's largest marketplace for independent creators to sell their work on the highest quality merchandise. With over 1.2 million designs, Tee Public is sure to have something you love. There's an um, interesting thing in regards to that bubble you, you talked about, especially in regards to men and how they communicate or the lack of communication. Mm-hmm. You know, these days, I'd I, I like to believe that us as men, us as blokes, we're much more open to talking about what's going on inside. I think the, the whole theme of mental illness is much more open now, and I think that's a really good thing as well. Um, back in 71, hell, back in 91, um, no one was really going down that, that lane anymore. And there's an interesting line in the movie that Maria says where um, she says the men don't talk here, but she makes reference to, like, the men in her village, while they didn't talk, they mm. sang, they mm. danced, they had a certain maybe a spiritual life where they went to church and they could express their kind of things that way. Um, when it comes to when it came to that, are you there? Yes. Oh, sorry. Um, when it came to that kind of aspect of it, how much of Mark's introverted nature has to do with him just being a guy in the 70s, or how much of it did it have to be being a guy in the 70s in Australia in that particular town? Yeah, look, it's definitely the 70s and the stories I heard. And there's also elements of when I was growing up in the 80s, 90s, uh, and there's elements of me, um, you know, growing up and fi- finding yourself in this world. Um, it, it's about finding your sense of uh, um, identity, I guess. Yeah. yeah. You've got lots of barriers to that, um, and how you have to work through to find out who you are. I think also, um, even today, there's, there's my brother's friends and people I know in the town. They're just blokes who get on with stuff and they don't say a lot. And yes, mm. we do discuss things a lot more, and we're very well aware that we can talk about things more and the importance of that. Yes. But the, same time it's easy to just fall back into ways unless we constantly work on ourselves or we watch out for people just because regional australia is so physically isolating as well so that um sort of affects the emotional isolation that can happen particularly if little traumas pop up or you know echoes of trauma that that knock you about um kind of got to constantly be on the lookout for these things because it's easy to just slip and fall into sort of bad habits um and it's interesting your comments about is it just an australian thing because I spent quite a bit of time, particularly around our surrounding Southeast Asian region over the last 20 years for work and, and, and sort of visiting friends. Um, but I notice in friends' families the way their father, maybe there might be a Singapore Chinese father, talking to their son or not, not talking for that matter, and they showed their love through food or gesture or money or something else. I really sort of saw parallels with different uh, families, the way they operated in my family or families in my community. So I think there's ways that, you know, father and son or grandfather and, and son or daughter or between husband and wife, that this dynamic, there are elements that are quite universal. And I wanted to really focus on what is universal in the family dynamic. So when trauma does affect that family unit or when troubles arise, um, how do they adjust and react to that? or cope, or not cope for that matter. Those little universal um, behaviours are what I was interested in this film in the context of an Australian regional physical landscape. There's an interesting thing that happens in the film when Maria comes into Leo's home. There's a Mm. shift in tone, there's a lightness, there's a colour to it. I think it had to do, you know, you you can kind of almost smell (laughs) 
the the, the mm-hmm. food that she's making, you can you can you hear the music, you just her attitude, her presence, kind of brings something new to to his world. Um, is that also symbolic of um, what immigration was like in that part of regional Australia as well? So, like my background is, my parents came from Croatia. They came to Australia in '69, um, and you know it's interesting some of the things in the opening narration um, that Maria talks about about the first time she sees kind of like Australia to sort of like and she talks about the sparseness and the silence of it. It's similar things that my parents have talked about. But they grew up in suburbia, so it's kind of different, um, you know, kind of uh, environment-wise. But when it comes to regional Australia in, 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 in kind of like what could be, I don't know, I'm just assuming certain attitudes towards the new people coming in, especially, say, Italian immigration. So I, I think it was more kind of like, I think I heard you said in the 80s was more, Italian immigrants, maybe in that part of um, that part of Australia, is that true of like a town as a whole? Is there a change in texture? Is there a change in the air when you have people that come from a different culture and they bring all of their cultural aspects to a town that might have been set in their ways for for decades at that point? Uh, most definitely, I think um, small towns are like microcosms of the greater society where they're small and they're small, and they when you have a large you know population that's different to who's there ready when they come in there's great change that happens and often in these worlds it's the fear of the unknown so there's mm. racism and and that sort of thing that comes up uh, and we explore that in the film as well it's i definitely want to make sure that's very clear in the film it's exploring the world i'm from the problems that existed but also the beauty that lies within all of that which is they did bring this color new people coming bringing new food and energy and that colour is reflected a, in the film, the mood shifts, like you say, but also the landscape of the town, the food we eat, um, the, the sort of the culture of the town um, changes. And I think it's not just the Italian arrivals, it's new Australians that come. They always bring something different and fresh that is, I guess, what makes Australia really fascinating. We adjust as a country as a consequence of these new people because we're small. Mm. We don't absorb like America. We shift and change. And that's the beauty of our evolving culture. So I really wanted to focus on on that component. Um, It happens over the course of the film, but for me it reflects how we as a country change over time. But it's also commenting on my individual experience in that town, which is maybe half 50% Italian background. Um, And, you you know, you, you see it in the life on the street, the people, um, the families, there's a lot of mixed families, the food, there's um, uh, a lot of orchards and um, tomato farms in the area. There's a lot of a lot of life and, and business that that is a consequence of the Italians arriving and changing that landscape. Um, so I wanted that to be in the film as well. You know, I think films in a, in a lot of ways are a time capsule. Um, they they even like say a period film. It's still you're still gra- grabbing what's happening with with you personally at that time. I know I speak to directors sometimes and they might look back in their film and they don't talk about necessarily the film themselves. They talk about the memories that come from that film, the filmmaking process. What's interesting about your movie is that you shot it ten years ago. It's coming out now. You know, there's you have chill child actors in your movies that are teenagers now. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like you can see the. The, the change of time, what's it like when your actors, when your cast look back at Little Tornadoes now? What do they take from it? And what do you take from it as well? Because you've had to live with the film. You're letting it go now to go into the public. Do you look back on it? Do you see uh, a different Aaron to what you are now? 
Um, it's really interesting because the, uh, the theme that I'm picking up in our conversation in the film as well is adaptation, evolution, uh, you know, changing with the time. What is Aaron, you know, the Aaron back then compared to the Aaron now? And, and would doing this process of 10 years, was that something you might repeat again with the third entry in the film? Because it's a, it's a, it definitely is a, a rare and interesting way to, to put a movie together. Yeah, look, I, I'd like to think it would take me a little bit less than 10 years to make the next film. Um, and I've done lots of things in the middle. I direct commercials um, and that travels, that gets me travelling around the world. Uh, and then also short films and other media. But I, the, the time it's taken to make this film, I've tried not to rush it. It, it taken as, I like to say it's taken as long as it needed to have taken to make the film that we've got today, mm. um, that it couldn't have happened any other way. Um, and, yes, there were frustrations along the way, but it's, it's, it's hard making film in Australia anyway. Yeah. So it's, you just got to stick to the, the, the mission. Um, I'll be stubborn in my case and just keep going, keep moving forward, and knowing that you've got a whole lot of people that are, have invested in you and the project, uh, not just investors but sponsors, actors, cast, crew, uh, along the way that have believed in this vision that becomes a shared vision. So you've got to really see it through, um, not just to completion, but now into getting it out to audiences and travelling with it and, and taking it on the road and doing a bit of a tour to actually engage with audiences to talk about stories that I feel are very relevant for regional audiences across the country, but just Australians at large. That rigor, I think, is necessary. But I'm fortunate that that it's happened the way it has, and we've had great people come on board to um, collaborate on the project. Well, I, I tell everyone out there right now: when this movie comes out May 12th in Australian cinemas, you have to watch Little Tornadoes because not only is it just a great story and great performances, but the craft of the film is really fantastic as well. Um, from the cinematography to the sound design, which I think is very important considering the, the regional aspects of the film, and also that great narration, you know, that Christos put together. I think narration can really make or break a film, and I think in the case of uh, Little Tornadoes, it does something really special uh, with the movie. Um, and Aaron, I thank you so much for your time today. Congratulations for the movie. So great it's coming out now. And um, look, man, uh, when that uh, next film comes out, I can't wait to talk to you again. I hope we can do it sooner rather than later. Thank you, Matt. I hope it's in definitely uh, less time than 10 years. Uh, <laughs> looking forward to talking, you that, talking with you then. <laughs>